State of the Industry podcast. This episode is brought to you by KP Movement Education, your source for health and movement education and coaching. Whether you are a health or fitness professional, a fitness consumer, or perhaps a passive bystander, KP believes that everyone deserves the right to pain-free movement. That's why their memberships and services are designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to create a culture of movement for yourself and those around you. With two membership options, you'll find education surrounding developing at-home training programs for yourself or for others, mental health and exercise, lifestyle medicine, and much, much more. Check it out at kineticperformance.ca backslash memberships. That's kineticperformance.ca backslash memberships. Welcome back to the State of the Industry podcast. I am your host, Adam Yangsma. For the next two episodes, we dive into the science behind exercise, or more specifically, the science behind cardiovascular physiology with our guest, Dr. Greg Dumanoir. Dr. Dumanoir is a tenure-track instructor within the School of Health and Exercise Sciences at the University of British Columbia, Okanagan. He holds a Bachelor of Science in Kinesiology and a Master of Science from the Faculty of Physical Education and Recreation at the University of Alberta. He received his PhD from the University of Western Ontario. Dr. Dumanoir has held a number of teaching-related positions, including sessional instructor at the University of Alberta and college professor in the Human Kinetics Diploma Program at Okanagan College. While his training is in cardiovascular physiology, he has a wide breadth of knowledge on the interaction and response of human physiology during exercise. Greg and I discussed the role of altitude training, the effect of training mass, the different adaptations that occur within the body as a result of different stimuli, as well as several other topics. I know I learned a lot during this discussion, and it also reminded me how much I forgot since my years in undergrad, so I know there will be a lot of practical information for you as well. On a side note, in his free time, Dr. Dumanoir enjoys wine, hitting the slopes, and long bike rides down muddy mountain trails. Without any further ado, let's dive right in. All right, so welcome, Greg, to the State of the Industry podcast. How are you? I'm doing well, Adam. How about you? I'm doing, I'm doing very well. Um, you know, school, school semester's starting up, so really, really busy this week, and I know you are as well. Chaos. The, <laughs> the storm before the calm, maybe? To say the least, I'm less nervous before teaching live than I am online. And uh, so this is going to be a new challenge for sure. Says, says the guy who runs a podcast, you can have all that technology piece down. I have all the technology pieces, whether or not the teaching side of things is uh, fine tuned enough to call me an expert on it. I don't know. I don't know about that. Yeah, you know, that. remember, I just post the audio of this. I have to actually teach, you know, how do you, how do you take blood pressure and heart rate? How, like you don't have anybody beside you. How do you teach this? That's right. That's right. Yeah. So that's going to be a challenge. But anyways, um, so before we get into some of the topics that we have, can you just give a little bit of a background about uh, who you are and how you got to be where you are right now as faculty at uh, UBC? Yeah. Can I just 
say by absolutely no planning and total luck. Um, <laughs> hopefully, we, we call it maybe planned happenstance. I don't yeah. Know. Um, yeah, so I'm a, a, an associate professor of teaching at UBC's Okanagan campus in the School of Health and Exercise Sciences. Um, and so I teach everything from active health, health and well-being, exercise physiology, laboratory techniques, tissue injury and repair, functional anatomy. Um, and I've been teaching for 10 or 12 years now. Um, prior to coming to UBCO, I was at uh, Okanagan College, um, which is a sort of small transfer school in um, Penticton. Um, and that's a two-year program that, you know, takes care of the first couple of years of, of a university degree and then sends all the students off to um, university to complete their degree. Um, and then prior to the, that position, I was a graduate student. Um, so probably go back even further and you know the six foot tall white kid realized his dream of being in the NBA was never <laughs> going to happen um, and uh, couldn't get away from sport and sport performance so um, I had entered into a bachelor's of science degree at the University of Alberta and kind of hated every second of that first semester um, and decided, you know what, I'm going to transfer into phys ed. Yeah. And so uh, closed all my books, didn't study for final exams. Maybe I shouldn't tell this story as, a, as an educator, but um, yeah, I didn't study for any exams. <clears throat> Went to the phys ed office and said, what does it take to get in? And they said, well, you have to get this grade and then you can be accepted as a transfer student. So I went back and started studying for my final exams again. But I couldn't enter phys ed until the following year and only take kind of open courses. Yeah. So my first phys ed courses were squash and nice. volleyball and basketball and applied resistance training and just kind of fell in love with it. Um, kept going um, through the degree and in my fourth year, um, had an opportunity to do a research project as a class mm -hmm. um, and then just fell in love with the research process, um, collecting data, working with subjects, answering a question, um, decided to pursue a master's degree and um, stayed at the U of A for that. And then again, still in, enjoyed that whole process, thought I would be a, a physiotherapist at some point um, and just as I gained some more experiences thought, you know, it's not really what I want to be doing. And the, at that time, the like brilliant job of the sports physiotherapist was really hard to come by. Yeah. Um, in Edmonton, it was the Glenn Sather sports medicine clinic. And there was three physios working there. And still to this day, those same three physios are working there. <laughs> um, you know, they've expanded a little bit, but uh, I realized it was, it was maybe not quite what I wanted. Um, mm -hmm. So decided to do a PhD and in the course of the PhD realized that I didn't want to write grants um, and chase the research dollars. So I started focusing on the teaching side of things mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, sought out some opportunities to become hopefully a stronger educator. Um, and like I said, it was never really planned. Um, just opportunities kept coming. Yeah. Um, and I just kept taking them and, and it, you know, got me to 
this place that I am today, um, working and playing in the Okanagan. And I say I wouldn't wish my path on anybody else, but it got me exactly what I want. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm ecstatic to be here. I think something else I'd, I'd probably share about those is just um, kind of trying to be a connector and meeting with people, um, you know, and um, bringing a positive attitude to those meetings. So, um, you know, good example of that is came to the Okanagan, didn't know anybody, started looking up people who own facilities in the area. Um, I was on um, strengthcoach.com, found a guy named Chris Collins who had a facility here, reached out to him via an email, went and met him three days later, um, ended up chatting for like five hours. Um, and with day, we had planned the Okanagan Strength and Conditioning Conference. Nice. Um, and about six months later, we had had uh, emails going out to, to guys like, you know, Charlie Weingroff and Joel Jameson and these types of guys. And somehow everybody said yes and came out to Kelowna to deliver these workshops. And, um, you know, the next year we did it again. And the next year we did it again. Um, so I've had some good opportunities by that type of approach. Again, just, um, you know, not in the plans. Yeah. Um, one more story for that too is colleague working at UBC here when I was at Okanagan College. He was planning a research expedition to um, base camp at Mount Everest and he had a whiteboard on his wall that said people going to Everest. And I just jokingly wrote my name on it. And it never got erased. And I got invited to go to Nepal for six weeks to do some high altitude research. And, you know, the question I always asked him was, why did you bring me? And he said, yeah. well, you're a good guy. And we need a little bit of that when you're at 5,000 meters and everybody's going crazy. So <laughs> I love it. I love yeah. it. Um, yeah, it's interesting. So you mentioned that your first, uh, your first kind of experience, uh, in the, uh, in your undergrad was your, was your quarter credit, you know, squash and, and resistance training. I loved my, like, man, my first year at Laurier. So I took the arts versus the science route in there because my, my end goal was actually to become a phys ed teacher. And right. so the quarter credit, like the, the arts program, the art stream was much, uh, better suited for that kind of direction versus something more sciencey like a physio or an osteopath or chiropractor. And so I went into the art side and I love, as you did, I loved those quarter credits. Like that's actually what grabbed my attention as well. Um, I always had the idea that that's, I wanted to do something in the health field, but I went in wanting to be a phys ed teacher. I left wanting to be a physio and I am neither. Right. right. So I, I do the same thing. Like I teach and, and, um, very similar to you, it was a lot of just right place, right time, knowing people um, and putting in the work and I guess being good at what I did, kind of got to where I am teaching at Centennial College's faculty there, uh, being able to open my own company and, and, and teach my courses kind of across the country and present across the world and in conferences. So like I've been blessed to be able to do that but like you probably wouldn't wish how i got here and the amount of jumping around like i moved almost every single year to the next opportunity right, um, right. 
because I was almost so unsure about what I actually ended up wanting to do. I was waiting for that thing to go, that's, that's what I want to do. Yeah. I think it's about that accumulation of experiences. Right. And, yeah. and, you know, maybe going back to your comments about those, you know, quarter courses or physical activity courses or applied methods courses, um, or even bigger than that, let's call it our phys ed degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you don't see that phys ed degree very often anymore. Yeah. Um, everybody's kind of shifted towards, uh, bachelor's of science in kinesiology or a human kinetics degree or kinesiology degree and Mm. and i think that's great i mean the science focus is is really important and i think we do a very good job of preparing um healthcare practitioners or allied health practitioners um what i think we're missing these days though is that like coaching aspect the um activity aspect the movement analysis aspect and the maybe the the communication pieces and and i think i mean you might be able to say the same thing but i think i was successful in those opportunities because i was able to communicate really well yeah um you know both from a a coaching perspective and just you know face-to-face conversation but um We'll see how the rest of the podcast goes, if I can communicate really well. <laughs> I'm sure you'll be great. Uh, so at UBC, um, are you currently doing research? And if so, what are you kind of looking into right now? Yeah, so what's unique about my position um, is it's a tenured teaching position. Um, so UBC has two parallel streams. Um, One would be your traditional research professor, um, that 40-40-20 split of research, teaching, and service. Mm -hmm. And then the teaching stream, which is a little bit more teaching-focused, and then what we call educational leadership. So the idea behind educational leadership is to to do best practices in teaching. Okay. Now, doing research doesn't really count towards that but that's not stopping me from doing research. So um, I supervise or co-supervise a couple of grad students um, and it's across a bunch of different areas. So my background is sort of cardiovascular, cardiorespiratory um, physiology. Mm-hmm. Um, master's degree was really focused on cardiac function and then PhD was focused on sort of oxygen transport. Um, and so I've stayed in that area. We've got some um, world-class researchers in sort of respiratory function and um, cerebrovascular physiology. Um, and those guys combine that with some altitude work. So, yep. um, you know, trips to um, Nepal to go to 5,000 meters to work with that sort of um, Tibetan or Himalayan um, high-altitude native Um, trips to Peru to work with Andean high altitude natives and new stuff that's coming up is to try to get to Ethiopia to work with some of the Rift Valley high altitude natives. Yeah. Um, So there's some of that and it's all really cardiovascular related, whether it's heart function, blood um, vessel control, um, brain blood flow and metabolism. Um, And then the other part of my research is actually a little bit more in that sort of applied sports um, science area. Yep. Um, so I work with our women's varsity volleyball team. 
um, and we do some sort of player monitoring wellness. Um, we use the MyVert system to track their volume and, and intensity of jumps in a practice and competition. Um, so I get to work with undergraduate students that way. They, they take on some undergraduate research projects where they are sort of managing the data collection and analysis. Um, and for a small school, we've got a pretty successful women's volleyball team. So nice. um, prior to becoming a university, they won the collegiate nationals twice and then have been to the sort of U sport nationals once um, in the last few years. So nice. Yeah. So lots of success. I like it. Mm-hmm. So um, I actually want to start off with uh, diving a little bit into what you were talking about, some high altitude training. And sure. I'm going to take this from kind of two different directions. So the first is with the current pandemic and the push towards having face masks one, uh, or the, the face shields and stuff. One of the things that I was looking into is uh, doing, because I don't do this research on my own. I didn't focus on uh, cardiovascular cardiorespiratory system as a whole. But one of the things I was looking into is are those, now they're not called altitude masks anymore. They're more like resistor masks. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of the research that I was looking at about those and the actual usefulness of them actually had nothing to do with like the response that you get from altitude at all, because the actual percentage of O2 doesn't change in the air that you're breathing. It just right. restricts, like makes it more difficult. So uh, before we dive into the altitude piece, can you just speak to those masks and what a, a possible benefit, if any, could be to wearing one of those during training? Yeah, I'll, I'll maybe show my bias right away. I, I think you should save your money. Um, but if you've got one already, um, I think the, the mechanism by which they could provide some adaptive response is by providing, like you said, that resistance to inflow and resistance to outflow. Um, so I, I kind of joke that these masks simulate chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. So, you know, if you want to give yourself COPD, they work yeah. great. Um, so, you know, really what that means is if you've got a sort of restriction or obstruction to flow, um, is you're going to have to recruit accessory respiratory muscles and your main respiratory muscles, diaphragm, um, to a greater degree when you're wearing them. Um, so if, if you think about, um, you know, just a sort of general adaptation syndrome approach, you put an external or a greater load on those um, respiratory muscles, and hopefully the adaptation would be to improve their strength and maybe their efficiency. Um, mm -hmm. So I think from a logic perspective, that makes a little bit of sense. But I think the thing that we really have to be aware of is if you're using a, a training mask, I think the quality of your training is probably going to be negatively impacted for some of the other responses. So yeah. if I'm doing some type of cardiorespiratory um, activity, whether it's continuous steady state in nature, or if it's an interval based um, activity and I'm wearing that mask, 
one of the things that happens is because your respiratory muscles are working harder, um, you get a phenomenon called um, respiratory muscle steel. Mm. And what that means is that more blood flow is being diverted to your respiratory muscles as opposed to going to your exercising muscles. Um, so you get a lower O2 delivery um, to let's say the, the muscles that are cycling. Um, and likely that has a negative impact on the sort of metabolic adaptation um, in those sort of peripheral muscles that we're, we're trying to make an adaptation to. Yeah. So if you're going to use them or use the mask, I think you have to have a really targeted approach to your training and give up some of the, the potential peripheral impact um, for the potential benefit yeah um i think if you want to do some respiratory muscle training there's some other devices out there like the power lung or the spiro tiger um and i think those guys have shown a little bit more um of a positive impact on respiratory muscle function um than sort of those altitude masks yeah um but when i was in my master's degree degree we did some work with the power lung and we didn't really find any performance benefits in a group that used the power lung for sort of 10 weeks okay and a group that didn't use the power lung but again that's just one study and there's some studies that have shown positive impacts as well so yeah 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 i i also think with that because you, you mentioned one of the pieces is that the you're going to have a negative effect on whatever the training outcome they're actually going for. So, you know, it, it's almost like you're trying to get two different adaptations to the same amount, but you're having to take away from one to add to the other. And I also think about this too, is that once you start to get to the point where it's getting harder and harder to bring in air, well, most of the time you're like, we're, we're taught to, to breathe through the nose as much as possible for the benefits that that provides but the nose can only pull so hard and then the mouth is going to start to go. So, you know, are you then teaching your body to then start breathing through the mouth when you're, you're really gasping for air like that or earlier? In the yeah. And then, yeah. yeah. And then the other piece is you're trying to strengthen the muscles that do your, uh, let's just call it inspiration first. And well, a lot of those accessory muscles are ones that you don't want to be on because that's going to then lead to stress breathing, right? Or, or overemphasize that if you currently do something like that. So while you may be trying to target the diaphragm, you may actually be getting kind of scalenes, upper traps, you know, um, sternocleidal mass side, all those trying to actually elevate and expand that, uh, that rib cage yeah, as well. And, and I don't know if that's necessarily a bad thing to make those muscles stronger. Yeah. But like you said, I, I don't know if you want to engage them earlier in a like progressive intensity exercise kind of environment. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's like the Dan John line about managing options and compromises. Yeah. Um, you know, so if you're going to do that respiratory muscle training, you're probably compromising some other adaptation but if that's what you want to do then just be aware that that's what's happening yeah but you're right they, those those masks have absolutely nothing to do with simulating altitude yeah so 
Yeah, because I think originally they were called altitude masks and they've now changed the name. Uh, I can't remember what they, they call them now because well, I didn't waste my money. <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't actually get one. Um, all right, so let's now dive into a little bit about altitude training uh, or, or altitude, the effects of altitude to begin with. So can you just go through a little bit of what happens to the... Uh, the, the blood specifically with its ability to hold and, 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 and pull in oxygen when we get into, when we start, because we always talk about live at altitude, train down, like, so live high, train low kind of thing um, to see the actual effects of, of altitude on, on the body. So can you just talk from a physiological perspective, what actually happens when we are living at altitude? Yeah. So I think it's probably a good idea to say the um, live high, train low approach um, I think works relatively well in probably moderately trained or untrained individuals, although I would put that at like the kind of top of the hierarchy of training. Um, you know, I, I don't think I would just like go do an altitude camp if I haven't managed like volume and intensity of training and, and those types of things. Yeah. Um, I'd say the evidence is maybe a little bit less convincing if you're already an elite athlete. Um, but there's some some ways to determine if that live high and train low would actually work for you. Mm -hmm. um, so the idea behind live high, train low is that you spend sort of upwards of 16, 18 hours a day um, living in a either a low oxygen environment um, or a kind of lower barometric pressure environment. So um, you can move to high altitude. Um, probably between two and four thousand meters is is sort of the suggestion. Um, you know, under 2,000 meters, you're probably not going to see much of a stimulus. Um, and then above sort of 4,000 meters, um, while the, the low oxygen or low barometric pressure um, is a really big stimulus for those sort of cardiovascular adaptations, it has a quite a large negative impact on sleep and recovery. Mm -hmm. um, so being above 4,000 meters is, is probably not recommended. Um, the other way you can do it is just by removing oxygen in the environment. So there'll be hypoxic generators, altitude tents, um, and the way they simulate altitude is just by removing some oxygen in the environment. Um, so rather than breathing about 21% oxygen, we drop it down to about 12% oxygen. And so in either case, what tends to happen is that we're exposed to a lower pressure or partial pressure of oxygen. And that partial pressure of oxygen is really the, the driving force to get oxygen into the lungs and then across the blood gas barrier into the blood and then pump to the tissue um, via the heart. Um, so hopefully if, if you've taken a physiology class at some point, um, you'll remember the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. Yep. Um, and the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve is this like S-shaped curve that relates the saturation of uh, hemoglobin in the blood to the partial pressure of oxygen that that blood is exposed to. 
And then we can do some math from that and calculate the content of, of oxygen in the blood, both that's bound to hemoglobin and that's freely dissolved in the blood. Um, <clears throat> now, that oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve works really well when we're at sort of lower altitude sea level to let's say 2000 meters. We do a really good job of capturing oxygen onto the hemoglobin and then being able to transport it and offload it to the muscle. Um, but when we have a, a partial pressure of oxygen that drops kind of below about 100 millimeters of mercury, sort of down to 60 millimeters of mercury, um, we have to have some adaptations because we're not very good then at loading hemoglobin with oxygen. And so we reduce the saturation of hemoglobin with oxygen, and we also reduce the content um, of oxygen in the blood. And those two um, variables are, are really tightly um, controlled. And so there's a whole bunch of physiological adaptations. Well, let's say adjustments, things that happen really quickly, and then adaptations, things that happen over a longer period of time. Um, that combat that reduction in partial pressure and content. And so some of those things um, that happen pretty quick um, is, you know, in order to maintain oxygen delivery when the content is low, heart rate jumps up. Yeah. So when you go to altitude, you'll have a really acute increase in heart rate. Um, that, that works to deliver a little bit more oxygen and maybe at rest and submaximal exercise, that's sort of a good thing. But if you start to do maximal exercise or if you go really high, heart rate can only increase to, you know, that mythical 200 beats per minute if you're a 20 year old. Yeah. Um, and then after that, you can't deliver any more oxygen. Um, so the next adaptations are around trying to increase the content. Um, and so another thing that happens really quickly is your um, ventilation rate goes up, um, both from a, a rate and a depth of breathing. Um, so, so that sort of heart rate response and the ventilatory response happen within sort of minutes to hours. Um, while those things are really good at sort of maintaining your ability to do some submaximal and, and maybe a reduced maximal exercise, um, they're not really the things that you want to happen from an adaptation perspective. Mm -hmm. um, so if I wanted to be able to go faster or do more at altitude, I need some other things to happen. Um, now there's some things that happen with your blood volume and um, some um, management of your acid base balance and your kidneys play a big role in that, but we'll leave that sort of stuff aside for now. And we'll just sort of target the main um, adaptation, which is um, red blood cell content or hemoglobin content. Um, and so within a couple of hours of being at, at altitude, um, you have a, a, a gain through the kidneys really is this um, stimulation for um, red blood cell production. Um, and the idea behind that is that if we can make more red blood cells, which carry the oxygen, we can then increase the content um, of our of the oxygen in our blood. Um, and so what you tend to see after a longer um, time at altitude 
is an increase in uh, hemoglobin concentration, or you know, you could measure it as hematocrit, or you could measure it as red blood cell volume. Mm -hmm. And so, the live high part for that sort of eighteen hours a day is to stimulate the production of red blood cells. Yeah. Um, the train low piece of that is that. Remember, if I'm at altitude and I do sub some submaximal activity, I'm relying on an elevated ventilation and an elevated heart rate to get a lower intensity of work compared to what I would be doing at sea level. Yeah. So we drop down to sea level to do the training, and then we go up to altitude to get that long-term exposure. Mm -hmm. A couple caveats to that really are if you're going to compete at altitude, so, you know, Tour de France is going on right now, um, lots of stuff in the Pyrenees and the Alps, um, and those athletes are exercising at altitude, then we should probably expose the athletes to that environment to, to be placed under stress. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, the big push for this came from the 68 Olympics in Mexico. Um, as a sort of post-hoc analysis, they realized that no world records were set in endurance events, mm. um, probably anything greater than 1500 meters. Um, and the times were quite a bit slower than the previous Olympics, despite improvements in equipment and training. Yeah. Um, but sort of explosive and throwing events, world records were set yeah. in almost all of those events. So the resistance um, to those implements was removed, but the reduction in altitude or reduction in oxygen at altitude was um, a negative impact. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's sort of where we see these, you know, high altitude natives um, doing some impressive things at altitude because they've had, you know, generations of genetic adaptations to living at altitude. So if you look at the Tibetan um, or Nepalese highland natives, they have a really good sort of ventilatory response to high altitude. And so they're really good at maintaining an, an oxygen driving pressure. And it's incredible how those guys do not get tired at altitude. Huh. Um, you know, the impressive feat story was um, when I was there, the Everest Marathon was going up. And so basically you run from Everest Base Camp um, down to Namche Bazaar. Um, and people go there for months to train for that at altitude. So you go from like 5,300 meters down to, I don't know if it's just under 4, 3,800 meters, I think Namche is. Um, and some, you know, Nepalese Sherpa porter shows up in flip-flops and wins the race in seven hours. <laughs> and these guys who've been training for months, it takes them 10, 12, right? But these are accomplished marathon runners. Um, so it's impressive what they can do. And, and that's a different adaptation than the Andean guys who they have just a higher red blood cell content right from birth. Yeah. Um, so they're really good at carrying oxygen. The problem is it creates really thick blood. And so you see um, Andean high altitude natives kind of dying early from cardiovascular disease. Okay. They have high cardiac work throughout their life. Um, and then you see sort of Tibetan or Sherpa highland natives, they're, they're dying from sort of hardship diseases, 
um, you know, really bad arthritis and, and these kinds of things. Not that you die from arthritis, but it yeah. impacts your your ability to to perform the work that needs to be done. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I find that interesting that, uh, you know, similar altitudes, but different regions have different adaptations to basically the same stimulus. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, any idea why that is? Oh, yeah, that's the question for my colleague, Bill Ainsley. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's the guy that, that's been sort of studying this for his entire career. And yeah, off the top of my head, I'm not sure what the genetic stimulus was to create that difference. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I believe it has to do with um, some genetic adaptation that just, you know, kept perpetuating itself. Um, yeah, but, but again, like you said, it's, it's such a different adaptive response. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. But, but it goes to show the integrative nature of oxygen transport, right? So yeah. if there's any one of these systems that, that has a sort of decrease in function, maybe another system can, can increase to maintain that, that sort of flux yeah. through the system completely. Yeah, I'm always like when it comes to specifically professional sports, you mentioned the Tour de France. Um, but even when I look at uh, basketball or hockey here in North America, when you go to somewhere like Colorado to play, so Denver, you always see the visiting team struggle a lot more in that altitude environment than, say, the, the Denver Nuggets or the Colorado Avalanche who who play there more regularly um and yeah it's really interesting because you mentioned that it's there's not a as big of a difference when it comes to elite athletes and yet even the small little difference that you see there right because they're all very very elite athletes but one group of them live there and the other ones just kind of visit there even though they're still and you still see a little bit of a difference in fatigue and ability to recover um, throughout those games yeah so so i think that's a that's a little bit different with the sort of acute response versus the adaptive response so yeah so if you're an elite endurance athlete who already has a high red blood cell content yeah altitude training probably isn't going to work as well for you mm. so if your blood's already got 15 well let's go higher if it's already got 18 grams um, per 100 mils of blood, um, sorry, if it's got 18 grams of hemoglobin per 100 mils of blood, going to altitude probably isn't going to raise that much more. Yeah. Um, whereas if you've got 14 or 15, going to altitude is probably going to raise that mm -hmm. up towards 18. Um, so this was the whole EPO, um, erythropoietin thing. Um, in professional cycling in the late 90s. Yeah. This idea that if you took erythropoietin um, or if you did blood doping, you would get an increase in your red blood cell um, content. And yes, that works. And so then what the um, governing body did was they said, let's measure people's hematocrit, so the ratio of red blood cells to plasma volume. And if it's over 50, people can't race. 
Mm-hmm. And so if you were a successful cyclist with a hematocrit of 42, and then you took EPO to get it to 49, you became a monster. Yeah. But if you were a successful cyclist before taking drugs and your hematocrit was 49, taking drugs didn't make you any better. And so all the guys that were successful with the 42 who now got hematocrits of 49 left you in the dust yeah now the the part about showing up to denver and having some you know physiological adjustment responses or increased fatigue um you know there's some management of that stuff that can be done it's i mean it's kind of inevitable um and i'm I'm not quite sure again what the travel schedules look like yeah um, for the athletes, but but there's this idea, if you showed up a couple of days ahead of time to a week ahead, you'd probably ameliorate some of that fatigue because you'd have those early early adaptations. The other option is just to show up a couple hours before and hope mm. for the best. Yeah. Um, and so, I don't know, I mean, if, if teams are arriving the day before, having a morning skate or a shoot around and then playing that evening, they might be in that window where the negative impact is, is being realized. Yeah. Um, whereas if they showed up to town three hours before the competition, obviously that doesn't really work with the way the schedules are, are set out. It might not be as, uh, as big of an impact on them. Hmm. Interesting. So. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, yeah. Right now there's no travel, but yeah, back when people <laughs> were traveling into Denver. Um, yes. Yes. Yeah, because I I always wondered that, um, but it's also interesting when you were talking about the the resistance in the air is lower. So when you look at something like football, for instance, and you look at you know field goals, all the records are always set at Mile High Stadium, right? Because yeah, home you know, runs you, at, in baseball too. Yeah, like least yeah. resistance to yeah, to the blocks. actual object itself. So um, yeah, it's very yeah, interesting. It's, uh, it's interesting that that timeline. Um, I was, uh, again, when we were traveling before, I had the privilege of going down to do uh, um, Institute of Motion course in in Denver, just outside of Denver. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, it was the um, anatomy-based course with the untreated cadaver dissections. And then the last day was like, you know, the movement stuff with Michel, who I think was recently on the podcast. Yes, he was. Um, Yeah, so... So got to spend a few days with with that group, but I came out a few days early and I decided that I would explore the cycling in and around Boulder. Yeah. So the first day I got there, rented a bike, rode 120 kilometers. Second day, rode another sort of 80 to 90 kilometers. And then the third day, I decided I would cycle up Pikes Peak. Okay. So that's a 35 kilometer uphill to 14,000 feet (laughs) and I was riding at like four and a half kilometers an hour at the top yeah um hardest thing I've ever done in my life um from an endurance perspective yeah but I think I blew it if I would have done Pikes Peak the first day I probably would have felt a little bit better because I had spent sort of two to three days at altitude already Mm -hmm. Um, plus it accumulated a whole bunch of fatigue from the days before yeah, but I got to the top and it was one of the worst moments of my life because 
this guy got up and he's like, bucket list done. And I said, oh, me too, man. And he goes, yeah, never thought I'd get up that thing twice in one day. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. Put my tail between my legs. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Um, so the, the last thing that I want to just chat about with regards to some of the stuff that you were talking about is you mentioned the, um, the Ethiopian plateau, uh, indigenous people there and those, that, that, those regions in, in Africa have always been phenomenal. Like when you look at Kenya, Ethiopia, like phenomenal at endurance, long distance, um, activities, marathons, ultra marathons, whatever it is. And this may go back to this, you know, be overlapping with the question I asked before, but have you guys looked into that? And like, is there a genetic adaptation that they have that allows them to be just better at that than, you know, anybody in like North America specifically who trains to be a marathoner? Yeah, so what's really interesting is that there's been a lot of work done with those um, Himalayan or Tibetan high altitude natives. There's been quite a bit of work done with Andean high altitude natives, but there's very little work having been done with um, that sort of Rift Valley group mm-hmm. um, from a physiological perspective. I'm not aware of the genetic um studies that have been done in those in those groups yeah um at least not to just pull from from my brain right now um, i'd have to look those up um and one of the reasons is it's really hard to get to those groups of people or it has been really hard to get to those groups of people in the past mm-hmm. obviously now this this sort of way uh, that's maybe not the right words, but the way to make a living in Kenya and Ethiopia now is to run yourself into a contract with, you know, Nike or some other sort of elite running group, um, mm. or to get yourself a, a scholarship. Um, so what we see is these groups of people with, um, you know, high altitude exposure from birth with the sort of genetic um, you know, longer than Himalayan and um, Andean altitude natives. So, so the Rift Valley natives have been there for, you know, probably thousands of years more than the um, Tibetan and Andean high altitude natives. Okay. Um, so there's probably something in there about the, the number of generations. Um, but then I also think it's this like, nature nurture piece yeah um you know everybody's running and everybody's running lots of miles and you know they have this maybe polarized training approach where they're doing their sort of low intensity days at a, at a really low intensity yeah but then their high intensity days are ridiculously fast hmm. um And then they kind of also bridge those with these days where they just have this progressive increase in intensity, Um, you know, and so you've got Elliot Kipchoge, the world record holder in the marathon and the Ineos and Nike kind of breaking two thing um, where he's done a sub two hour in a artificial environment. Um, So he's the man, right? Entered 11 marathons, won 10 of them or something like that. 
Um, and, and he still does the training runs with everybody. And the idea is on this like progressively intense day, they'll start the day with 100 or 150 athletes. And then as the intensity goes up over there, however long the run is, 30K, the last guy running is Kipchoge. Like the intensity just goes up so fast that he's the yeah. last man standing. Mm. Um, with this, again, the story being people who try to hold on are the ones that get noticed. Hmm. So I think they do some really good training. Yeah. And then they've got this environment where it's the, the sort of carrot is to get noticed by running. Then they've got their, their genetic predisposition. Um, but I think we're going to see that population change really quickly because, you know, people are moving to the cities and, you know, lots of North Americans and Europeans are going to train with them. Yeah. Um, so that environment is changing quite a bit. Hmm. Um, yeah. you know, I wish I had more from a physiological perspective. Um, you know, as a group here, we had a, an expedition arranged um, for last fall that got pushed back a little bit. Then it was supposed to go in the spring. And obviously with COVID, it yeah. didn't happen. So, yeah. I also wonder if there's... Uh when you look at, you know, so we're talking kind of the physiological with regards to the cardiovascular, cardiorespiratory system. But even if we look at like, uh, it would be something to, to look at, but if there's bone, muscle, tendon, fascial, uh, genetic changes that have occurred there as well to make them more efficient at the actual running process as well. Like, you know, whenever I talk to, uh, to students, I'm always like, you know, train kind of the way that you want to look right when you look at marathon runners they're very slender they're narrow they're almost boxy uh, and then you look at sprinters and they're large you know when we're looking at the difference between type one type two fibers as well mm -hmm. right and uh and so it's really interesting to talk about to talk about that as well and like the changes that are probably or the adaptations that probably occurred over as you said generations and generations with regards to uh, muscle fiber and, and, and tissue density, like all those types of things. Yeah, I would imagine that they have a really high proportion of type one fibers, um, you know, probably some of the highest we'd see mm -hmm. from, a, um, from a population perspective. Um, I can't remember if it's Dan Lieberman. Um, Specifically, he's a like biomechanics researcher out of Harvard, and I think he wrote the story of the human body. Yeah. Um, or if it was in the sports gene. Um, but they address a paper that looks at um, inseam length. Okay. And I think the story is that uh, Michael Phelps, who's what, six foot six or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it was Kipchoge or if it was a previous marathon world record holder whose name is escaping me right now, um, placed side by side. Um, let's just call it Kipchoge for now. He's like five foot seven, five foot six. And if you take the inseam length of both Phelps and Kipchoge, they're the same. Mm. So as a percentage of their, their total height, yeah. Um, let's just make a sweeping statement that these Rift Valley natives 
have really long leg limb lengths yeah which allow them to have greater stride lengths and be much more efficient if we coupled that with type 1 fibers their efficiency is really high and then if we call them having large hearts and big lungs yeah um, really high hemoglobin contents then you know that's the recipe for an unbelievable endurance athlete whereas yeah. you take phelps with short legs but a long torso and really long arms that's the design for an excellent swimmer yeah and it'd be interesting too to see uh, them compare somebody like usain bolt right to that as well uh because still requiring long limbs, but different migra- uh, muscle fiber type makeup in there, right? More power oriented than kind of, you know, stride length. Well, stride length is still important, but anyways. Yeah, yeah. well, I mean, from a Usain Bolt perspective, I think stride length and stride frequency, um, because his stride length is so long, he has to take fewer steps, but each of those steps can be maybe a little bit more powerful yeah um, given his type 2 fiber concentration yeah um I, th- I think what's hard though is that you know we're comparing phelps and kipchoge <laughs> and bolt who are like they've been touched by the hand of god so yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, i don't know yeah. if it's impressive for sure but um yeah. not necessarily yeah, the rest i can't make my my leg length any longer yeah yeah. yeah. And I tried to make my heart bigger, but <laughs> it didn't happen over the years <laughs> of training. So, yeah, I love it. Um, all right. So the last thing that I kind of want to talk about in, in part one here is continuing along with the conversation that we're currently having about optimizing the, the training for uh, the specific outcomes that we're looking for. And uh, like, we'll just stick with endurance sports endurance events here and you mentioned some stuff about the the ethiopian highland um indigenous people and how they are doing some of the training so what would be optimal training for somebody who is wanting to get into we won't say they are already but wanting to get into perhaps working their way up to running a marathon uh over time and uh wanting to actually do reasonably well in it and not just be like a finisher but actually compete in that what would your recommendations for training be yeah i mean you have 14 weeks i mean we do a whole course on that so (laughs) um i I guess with that in in mind i think you know we'll say all of that stuff around you've done some really good assessment you've talked about you know their goals you've made sure that they're um you know robust enough to um to be able to handle some um you know training stress like if it's running for example that sort of repetitive action and you know we could talk a little bit about resistance training for endurance athletes but maybe we'll keep that aside for now um you know the the literature and some of the the sort of coaching approaches would suggest that there's two ways to to attack this um the first way that's kind of getting popular or has been popularized in the last little bit is this polarized training approach. Um, really brought to light by um, a researcher out of Finland, um, Steven Seiler is his name. And basically what he did was he did a retrospective study on all of the 
sort of elite performers in the Olympics within endurance events. So um, being from Scandinavia, he looked at cross-country skiers, orienteers, um, you know, he did some cycling, some running, mm-hmm. um, and he just looked at training logs um, from these individuals. And uh, what he found was that they spent probably 80 to 90% of their training time in a low intensity environment with the remaining 10% of their time spent doing high intensity work. So the way they divide up the um, intensity zones is really based around sort of the lactate threshold um, or the sort of ventilatory threshold one and two. Mm -hmm. Um, So the sort of um, low intensity training would be below that first threshold um, below sort of two millimoles of lactate. And then the high intensity would be above four um, okay. or that sort of ventilatory threshold too. Um, and really the stuff in between, they don't do much of at all. Hmm. So it's low intensity for a really high volume and then it's high intensity for a really low volume. Mm-hmm. So this this sort of statement of keep the low low and keep the high high. Yeah. I think the thing that's really important to note about these elite uh, endurance athletes is that their high is unbelievably high. The speed, the power output, you know, velocities is ridiculous. Um, yeah. Because again, they're the the ones who are touched by the hand of God. Yeah. The other thing that we have to remember about these guys is that they're essentially professional athletes. So they have as many hours in the week to train and recover as, as there are in the week. Yeah. Whereas most of us who are starting to, to train for an endurance event, we probably have work kids, you know, dogs managing COVID environment. So, you know, either in the COVID environment, you've got a lot more time to train or you've got a lot less time to train. Um, so the thing I think we have to, to remember with sort of your average Joe is this idea of they're probably more of a time-starved athlete. Um, and that time-starved athlete probably has, let's call it six hours a week to train um maybe a little bit more if we include like a long run on sunday morning um but i think it's hard for people to wrap their head around am i going to spend 80 percent of my six hours doing things that are really slow like my heart rate's around 110 beats per minute yeah um you know i don't feel like i'm doing anything i don't feel like i'm getting bang for my buck or this isn't no pain no gain um but we have to remember that it's a really good stimulus, even though it's a low stimulus. Yeah. Um, but then when you do the high intensity stuff with the time starve athlete, it has to be really, really hard. And so now we're balancing this like, okay, that was so hard that I don't know if I can walk tomorrow um, <laughs> kind of thing or you know, exercise shouldn't make me throw up. I'm not advocating that we make people throw up, but, yeah. you know, we need to have the intensity be hard. So the other approach then to this um, training is rather than having this like polarized approach, 
we really have this threshold based approach or something that would be considered more like sweet spot training. Okay. And so this sweet spot training is to find this like power output or velocity that's like right below that sort of anaerobic threshold. Um, you know, critical power might be another term that people might have heard. And I'm not sure we want to open that Pandora's box right now. Um, <laughs> you know, what is critical power? But you kind of want to work at, let's say, 90-ish percent of that anaerobic threshold um, for a bunch of your training sessions. And then add in some recovery days and some days that are a, a little bit harder. So, you know, the, the polarized training approach is like a U-shape. Okay. Um, with a really high end towards the um, low intensity. Um, and then the, the sort of sweet spot or threshold base is an inverted U with most of the training being in between that sort of VT1, VT2, LT1, LT2. Yeah. Um, and the idea behind that is that the stimulus is just hard enough to see some broad-based adaptations but it's just low enough that you can recover from it on a regular basis um now which one would i advocate i i don't know i think it would be really dependent on the um, athlete that i'm working with um yeah. you know i find Again, and of one anecdotal evidence from myself, I find that the polarized training works really well. Yeah. From an adaptation response, but from a mental perspective, um, I get tired of staring at the wall on my bike trainer for hours, right? And living in yeah. Kelowna, it's kind of hilly, so it's really yeah. hard to, to get a kind of low intensity training session in. Yeah. Um, you know, but I'd also, I also want to say that I'm not this like advocate that everything should be high intensity. Yeah. Um, I believe that high intensity interval training, for example, is really important. Um, but all the evidence in the literature around HIT training is done on, you know, six week studies or 10 week studies Yeah. and the, you know, muscular metabolic and cardiorespiratory adaptations are, are really profound in those six weeks like marty gabala's study looking at you know multiple wing gates mm -hmm. um, over just a two-week period i mean the improvement in vo2 max and anaerobic threshold was incredible um, from such a short time now it was a 30 second wing gate all out effort there was a bike uh, sitting at the side of the fitness center beside that bike was a garbage can yeah beside that garbage can was another bike and then there was another garbage can and they just had athletes coming in or subjects coming in doing a 30 second wing gate they got like three minutes off three and a half minutes off another 30 second wing gate three and a half minutes off and so the, you got to think the intensity of that is so incredible and they needed a garbage can right beside because the metabolic byproducts were were so strong that people were throwing up. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I want to take my average Joe client through that intensity of work. Um, and I know for sure that two weeks of that stimulus works really well. 
but I'm not sure if I could do that for a third week or a fourth week or a fifth week. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's another great study out there. Um, guy's name is escaping me right now. Um, anyways, they did um, really hard interval work three days a week. And then three other days a week, they sent everybody out for a threshold run. Um, and so they did six days a week of training, um, really high intensity. And it was a 10 week study and everybody's VO2 max was going up. Every single participant at multiple time points over the study had improvements in VO2 max threshold efficiency. And so at the end of the 10 weeks, they applied for an extension through ethics at the institution, got the extension, and then asked the subjects if they would stay in the study because they hadn't plateaued in their responses yet. Every single one said, no, it was too hard. Hmm. And most of them said they barely held on, but they felt responsible yeah. <laughs> because they had agreed to it. Yeah. Um, you know, so those types of studies work, but I don't know how how well we can maintain that super high intensity work, repeated, 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 repeated. So I think it's important to, to blend in that low intensity training as well. Yeah. Um, so you kind of answered one of the questions that I had was the, was that physiological benefit to doing the high intensity within that polarized training model, right? Like a lot of people think, well, if I want to run a long distance, I got to run long distances. Like that's, that's what I'm going to do. And there's actually a few individuals in the strength and conditioning, you know, training field who speak to the benefits of more high intensity training over and, and probably something more towards that, uh, that sweet spot training that you were talking about where you're pushing a lot harder, more high intensity, whether it's high intensity steady state or high intensity interval is an argument to be had later, but they do something more high intensity because you get a lot of the same benefits as you were saying with VO2 max at that high intensity, instead of putting in that long-term slow, low intensity effort, if that isn't your, like, so if, if running isn't what you're going to be doing, maybe you're a hockey player doing some, uh, you know, grabbing an aerodyne bike and, and going high intensity would benefit you quite well. Going for a, a, you know, 10K run maybe isn't worth the time that you're putting in to do that is kind of the viewpoint of a lot of them. Do yeah, I mean, I guess I would agree with that for the most part. Again, it's this like managing the time you have available to, to train. Um, yeah. You know, from a performance perspective, I'm sort of a big believer that athletes should be practicing the technical and tactical aspects of their sport as yeah. much as possible. Yeah. Um, or they should be recovering from whatever type of training and competition they've experienced in the last little bit. Or they should be spending time with their family. <laughs> right? Like, I think those should be the three main priorities. So, yeah. oh, crap, I'm a, I'm a university professor who's training people to be, you know, kinesiologists or performance specialists. And I just said that I don't think athletes should be training. <laughs> That's not really what I mean. Yeah. I think that athletes need to go do resistance training and energy systems training um, to supplement their technical and tactical environment, yeah. to help with their recovery, 
Um, but again, if I can sell to LeBron James that if he does resistance training, mobility work, energy systems training, then I might be able to keep him in the league for another two or three years. Like that's $400 million for that guy. Yeah. Right. Um, but if I can also say, look, we've done enough that now you can go home and be with your family. Like you can't buy that time. Right. Yeah. And, and maybe that's just me. Cause I have, you know, a 12 and 15 year old daughter who now sort of want nothing to do with me. And I just want to <laughs> spend more time with them. Yeah. Um, yeah. but, uh, I think we need to be efficient with our, with our training. Now, yeah. if we look at it from a physiological perspective, again, let's take maybe an interval based sport, like, you know, basketball or hockey, um, you know, the cardiovascular system is pretty important both for the work periods along with the recovery periods. So yeah. I think we need to spend some time on that. And if we think about O2 transport and utilization, there's a bunch of different places that we need to train. So, okay, lungs, I don't know if we can train the lungs very well. Um, they tend to be a really overbuilt organ because they're exposed to the atmosphere. We can't make your lungs bigger it's really hard to make them better at diffusing oxygen um but as we had that conversation earlier maybe we can improve respiratory muscle function yeah next step is that heart right so the chamber size the efficiency for um, with which it pumps you know preload afterload contractility all of those types of things um you know size of the chambers size of the walls those are really important We'll go to the blood vessels and now we're looking at their compliance and how well they distend and contract um, we look at the you know blood itself the amount of red blood cells how well we bind oxygen we go down to the muscle level and we look at the capillarization and mm. the diffusing distance for oxygen and then we go into the muscle and we're looking now at sort of mitochondrial size and and function and if all we're doing is the high intensity interval training. We're probably really spending most of our time looking at the sort of mitochondrial and muscle side of things. There's some evidence that it improves cardiac function, but I don't think it improves cardiac function as well as some of the longer steady state stuff does. Mm, okay. So again, this is like, where are you targeting? Yeah. And maybe it's sufficient for an athlete to target the muscle and mitochondria if they're an interval-based athlete. I would argue that oxygen delivery and transport is still pretty important. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm also a big believer that if that athlete was exposed to lots of sports as they were growing up, so, you know, they're the kid who joined the running club in elementary school and ran around the school in the mornings you know, they played floor hockey, they did soccer, they played basketball, they rode their bike, they probably developed their cardiovascular system sufficiently to support that O2 delivery and, and muscle mitochondrial function. But if all they did was play hockey and did intervals and, and you know, shooter tutor against the garage, something like that, and they yeah. just went to hockey, I don't know if they developed that system well enough, and they might be well served by some of that longer duration um, activity and let's call it the off season or, you know, 
it doesn't have to be sitting on a bike for two hours. It can be some kind of multimodal activity where the heart rate's maintained at 120 beats per minute for 30 minutes, let's say. Yeah. Um, or it's the longer bouts of interval work that last sort of 30 to 45 minutes um, where the heart rate doesn't get to recover between exercise bouts that may cause that sort of cardiac adaptation. Right, but hopping on the airdyne for like four two-minute intervals with two minutes of rest—that's probably not a big enough stimulus for the cardiac side of things. It's probably a good yeah. stimulus for, well, that's probably a crappy um, prescription because a two-minute interval is going to be very glycolytic, and we probably don't want to be glycolytic very often in sport yeah. especially hockey i say if you're the hockey player that gets on the ice and skates full out for two minutes you're probably a really bad hockey player <laughs> yeah that's probably very true very true um that just brings me back to um the beer league hockey i'm missing um all right so uh just looking at time let's um i think that's a great place to break i actually wrote a whole bunch of notes so i got a whole bunch more questions to dive into awesome. this topic a little bit further and uh, we will do so in part number two Awesome. State of the Industry Podcast.